Welcome to episode 252 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Today's the day. Launch team members are receiving the advanced copy of Small List Big Results. Launch a successful offer, no matter the size of your email list, later today. To encourage them to read the book this week in preparation for writing an Amazon review, I've arranged for a librarian-led book club discussion to be hosted on Tuesday, October 12th. This is a private event for book launch team members. Sign up for the book launch team and I'll be sure you get an invite. Sign up at robbysamuels.com forward slash book launch. The book is a quick read and packed with actionable steps, also known as your challenge sections. The question is whether or not you'll take time to complete these challenges. Meeting with a community of fellow entrepreneurs to discuss the book will help you dive more deeply into the content as you consider how these strategies apply to your own business. Fortunately, my systems and processes business coach, Mary Williams, has a degree in library science and she's agreed to facilitate our discussion. Equally as beneficial, she's been trained in the strategies described in the book and has experienced coaching entrepreneurs through this process. Together, we'll be able to answer any questions that come up as you're reading the book. Early reviews make it clear this book is a valuable resource. Here's one from Bob Berg, co-author of The Go-Giver. He said, Great book. Lots of wisdom-filled gold nuggets for building a business that is both emotionally satisfying and financially profitable. (laughs) Thanks, Bob. I appreciate your support. Your challenge this week. Are you ready to take action and implement the wisdom-filled gold nuggets in my book? This book will show you how to stop struggling to find an audience for new offers, discover likely prospects from your network who already know, like, and trust you, co-create an irresistible offer, and turn that offer into a profitable new revenue stream. These are the best practices I followed to reinvent my business in 2020, from shuttered to six figures in eight months. Fortunately, I knew how to do this because one of my many hats is that I'm a business growth strategy coach. I've worked with dozens of entrepreneurs on finding product market fit and lead generation with an emphasis on engaging with their existing network. Please join my book launch team at Robbie samuels.com forward slash book launch and commit to writing an honest Amazon review in a timely manner. As a thank you, you'll receive an advanced copy PDF of my book, a reminder to download the free Kindle book when it's available on Amazon, access to all the book's resources, starting with the Wake Up Your Network workbook, which you'll receive as soon as you sign up, the invitation to attend a free librarian-led book club discussion, an invitation to attend three free masterclasses, and an invitation to attend the book launch debrief meeting, where we discuss what we did, what worked, and what we would do differently. And of course, my deepest gratitude for your continued support. As you know, or can imagine, downloads and reviews within the first few weeks are critical to the success of a book. I believe this book will make a difference for entrepreneurs who are struggling to find an audience for their offer. It won't do anyone any good, though, if no one knows about it, and that's where you come in. Here are some of the reasons you may want to support me and the success of this book. One, 
you've appreciated and perhaps benefited from my show up and add value philosophy. Two, you are excited about the topic and plan to try out these strategies in your business. And three, you're looking forward to seeing the behind the scenes of a strategic book launch. Again, you can sign up for the book launch at robbysamuels.com forward slash book launch. I can't wait to read your review. My promise is to support you. You set the intention to support this book and I will make it as easy as possible for you to follow through with your intention. Thank you for helping me get this book out into the world. Now onto this week's Encore interview. Today's guest believes in celebrating and embracing diversity. With a unique and practical approach to diversity inclusion, she helps leaders and teams promote a more inclusive work environment. She brings a fresh and uniquely positive approach to diversity keynote talks while still challenging the status quo. Her work has been featured in USA Today, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and Fast Company. She's appeared on CNN, The Today Show, the BBC, and the National Public Radio. She's been named one of Chicago's notable LGBTQ executives by Crane's Chicago Business and one of the top 25 women in meetings by Meetings and Conventions Magazine. She is the CEO of Equality Institute and an award-winning author of four books, including Inclusive 360, Proven Solutions for an Equitable Organization. Please join me in welcoming Bernadette Smith. Hi, Robbie. I'm so happy to be here today, especially since you and I go way, way, way back yeah, <laughs> from when we I, both lived in Boston. That's right. I, we were just talking about it. it's 20 years. So, Bernie, I'm so thrilled that we are connecting again while you're in Chicago, Illinois. Let's just dig in. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? I love this question. I've been obsessed with leadership for a very long time, but I define leadership as someone who is inspiring and guiding a team towards a shared sense of purpose and shared goals. So there's really got to be a strong sense of purpose and a a strong vision that the leader is inspiring others towards and and really putting, putting them first and listening to their needs, their ideas, and, and getting everyone on board towards this shared vision. Yeah. So inspiration, vision, momentum, engagement, not happening in a vacuum. I love it. So when did you start to realize you had some of these, these skills or aptitudes? Well, I don't know if you remember, Robbie, since we're both from New York, you might know this. Um, were you at or heard of Woodstock 94? I do remember uh, hearing about it. <laughs> Okay, so Woodstock 94 happened when, uh, about half an hour away from my hometown. And it happened the summer I graduated from high school. So I guess I'm aging, I'm aging myself here. Um, so at that time, there were all these radio announcements looking for folks to set up um, food booths inside Woodstock 94 and have a charity benefit, a nonprofit benefit. So I was involved very lightly in Habitat for Humanity back then, and I partnered with a local Habitat chapter, and I basically organized a lot of my friends and a lot of these people who were involved in Habitat to um, to serve food at these booths at Woodstock 94, and we got to go to the shows for free uh, <laughs> during during our off time. I mean, there's, there are a lot of stories <laughs> wrapped up in that one story, but 
the point is I used my vision to get my friends into Woodstock for free and be the, the hero of my own story uh, and also to raise money for Habitat um, then. And so I was 17, just graduated from high school, and I knew that this was something that I could do to make an impact and and be, be a cool kid. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first of all, that sounds just awesome. It reminds me, actually, I, I ran a volunteer, a charity bar at a Pride event on the pier in New York City um, and yeah, it was a lot of work. I wasn't actually in charge charge, but like, wow, it was a lot of work. So I can only imagine. Um, but the fact that you were 17 and you knew that this was a possibility, like you saw this and were like, yeah, let's just make this happen. That says something about who you already were at 17. So, so let's like wind the clock back a little bit. Bernadette, you're on the playground, you know, you're in grammar school. You're in elementary school. Like, what kind of kid are you? Are you organizing people back then? Are you the are teachers like taking notice of you? Are you watching the crowd and trying to figure out how everyone works together? Like, what's what's what are you like then? Uh, I was super super shy. I did not really have friends um, in elementary school through sixth grade. I was uh, at a private Catholic school. Um, my parents sent me to. Catholic school when I was four. And they actually sent me to a different Catholic school, which had an earlier cutoff date. So I could go to kindergarten at four instead of five. <laughs> so I was the always the youngest in my class. And I think because of that, my social skills were a little bit less developed and I did not make friends easily. I was super shy. And uh, my parents were also a lot older than me. They had me when they were in their early forties. So everyone thought that they were my grandparents and I had some embarrassment around that. So it took me a really, really long time. Well, I guess maybe till I was 16, 17 to really find my voice. And then, you know, now I haven't really shut up since. <laughs> and yet, okay. So what's the, like, I feel like there's like this um, caterpillar and then like butterfly moment at the end of the story. But um, was there a teacher or somebody or an adult that like recognized what was possible within you that, you know, was sort of like coaxing you towards using that voice a little bit? Um, a little bit. Yeah, I definitely had some some really good teachers in high school, one of whom uh, he was an amazing teacher. And we took a public policy class in which I had to all of us had to choose a position and write a report on it and defend it like in front of the class. And I really owned it. I rocked it. And it was kind of the first time I was ever given a chance to take an opinion on a paper as opposed to just reporting. Um, and I loved being able to have, have my own perspective and really like slay the room. I, I remember that very distinctly, um, probably around 16 or 17. So that was that was helpful. Um, and also, I my parents sent me away to a five-week camp at Boston University between my junior and senior year, and it was a film and television production camp, um, and it's what I wanted to do with my career at that point. And really being in a completely new space, having to make completely new friends, find my identity there, um, gave me kind of a fresh start and built my confidence. And it was really cool. It was a great experience. So I guess kind of the combination of those few things helped me find my voice. Yeah. I also imagine that that kind of camp attracts like the artsy, quirky kids who 
like are open to meeting each other. <laughs> you know, like no, there's no preformed click uh, if everyone's kind of coming together for five weeks. It's like a lot to engage, but everyone finds each other. Yeah, there was definitely no preformed click, but the clicks formed very quickly. <laughs> I imagine. And thereafter. But my roommate was like the cool kid, right? And she and I were really tight. And so um, being the cool kid's roommate helps me. <laughs> so um, so you thought you were going to get into to film and arts and uh, not how I know you at all. Um, so did you head off to college to do that or did you go off with a more general understanding of what you might do? Or? I went back to Boston University two years later and uh, got a four-year degree in film. Master, or a, a Bachelor of Science in Communications with a concentration in film. And then I never really used it because uh, what I, what I learned through that is that it's a big process, especially back then we were literally using film. We were editing, cutting film, splicing film with tape. Like, <laughs> and I, and, and also just the process of being on set and creating this production. I mean, it is, you have to have a lot of patience. You have to believe in it and bring it to, and, and believe in it for years before it even sees the light of day. And that's just not how I roll. So uh, the way I sort of know you is through LGBT activism sort of initially, I mean, you know, I mean, you and I had circles of friends and that we knew, but then I think that professionally, the way I thought of you was that the lead you took, um, marriage equality became a reality. You saw an opportunity. I've actually always always wanted to have this conversation with you because I think you acted really fast and established yourself very quickly as a professional and as an expert, as a resource, as a go-to. Um, so, you know, were you already doing work in that, in that space and it was just a slight shift or was this like a jumping in with both feet? There's an opportunity here. Yeah, I, I, I do not test the waters. I jump. <laughs> um, so like, backing up, in 2004, Massachusetts became the first state in the country to have marriage equality. And they were trying to, there are a lot of people trying to amend the Constitution to ban marriage equality before the law actually went into effect. So there's, in this six-month period of time, there are a lot of protests and hearings at the state house, And I had already learned that I was good at event planning. So that was a skill that I was very comfortable in. It's something I had been doing for the nonprofit that I was currently working for. And, uh, and I would take long lunches and go to the state house after work and really got caught up in the momentum and the energy of this moment. And at one point, I just looked around at all of these couples, many of whom had been together for decades. And I thought, I'm going to be a gay wedding planner. And I really decided to to start a business, I had a business partner back then, but to start a business, helping these couples feel safe while navigating a very heteronormative industry. So I started, I, I considered myself an activist wedding planner. Um, and I did not have any wedding planning skills. I grew up Catholic. The only weddings I'd ever been to were Catholic. Most, all of them in churches, like very traditional type of experience. And so at the time, having a business partner helped me overcome some of the imposter syndrome that I felt about having no skills specific to weddings, but knowing that I had really good skills related to event planning. So there was some tension there in terms of my own figuring out how I could really develop this. But, um, but yeah, I just jumped in. I started a company called It's About Time, built my own little website 
uh, started Google ads. And then within like moments, I started getting great press and getting clients and it really took off pretty quickly. It was yeah, exciting. I remember, I remember blowing up, like it being huge. Uh, you were sort of showing up all over the place. The timing was beautiful. You know, um, there was definitely a moment that everybody like, we, I, I remember those protests. I remember, I remember watching people line up and come out of Cambridge City Hall when they were getting their mm -hmm. marriage licenses. Like it was just such a moment in time. Um, so you were like, these people are going to need some support. <laughs> I can do that. And I like the idea that you brought in a business partner to kind of counterbalance the challenge you felt around. I don't really know this industry, even though I know events. And how did you figure out who that person was going to be to help you navigate that? We both worked part-time at a restaurant and she had more experience on the, not so much on the planning side. Her experience was more on the execution side on the day of, um, cause she had a lot of experience with banquets and functions um, from working for a catering company uh, in Miami. And so she had the implementation piece and, and I had the planning piece. So we started the company with me kind of being the behind the scenes and then basically handing it off to her to execute. And yeah. that was the original uh, way we distributed things. That's great. And that morphed though, because you, you've, you've grown from this almost happenstance business plan that became awesome. And then you sort of moved more into the broader diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging space. Um, how, like, what was that trajectory like? How did you realize that, that you didn't want to stay? I mean, it, I would also say that wedding planning for same-sex couples is very, very different now than it was, you know, almost like over 15 years ago. Um, yeah. So maybe it's not as, you know, critical and you're like, well, there's only the people. So, you know, I think you like to be in it and there's no, you know, everybody else is already there. So you're like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you know what the next thing was going to be? And how did you know when it was time to transition out? That's a great question. Uh, you know, it's been such a wild ride. Uh, so about four years after I started my business, Twitter was invented. And then I started through social media connecting with people in the wedding and hospitality industry across the world who are asking me questions like, so what's the difference between a gay wedding and a straight wedding? Or why does it matter? Like what, why did the, why does someone need you? And I was able to really formulate, like I was able to figure out the answer to those questions. Um, the answers that Google could not answer. And so I decided to start speaking and writing about, about the business side of things to help educate the industry because I knew that my the impact that I could make was much bigger than the impact I could have with these couples. And so I eventually ended up writing three books all about LGBTQ weddings, two books for couples, one book for people in the industry, um, started speaking at all of those major industry conferences, created a certification course. Um, eventually, I, when marriage equality came to New York, I moved my family and my business to New York City. And all of a sudden, I'm flying high, I look around one day and I'm planning quarter of a million dollar weddings and not really feeling like an activist wedding planner anymore. And um, at the same time, my own marriage was falling apart and all of my world sort of came down crumbling because I um, 
first of all, I got my ego got too big. So the universe had to humble me. Um, and second of all, because I wasn't really living my purpose, you know, yeah, it's fun to spend someone else's money, but working with New York city clients, uh, planning weddings is, you know, it's a lot, (laughs) or at least it can be a lot. And it certainly wasn't really the vision I had for myself. So long story short, got divorced, moved to, moved to Chicago for new love decided I wasn't going to rebuild my business in Chicago, nor was I going to keep traveling back and forth to maintain my relationships on the East Coast. And uh, eventually pivoted my business away from weddings and focused specifically on the educational piece. And then eventually that kind of brought in beyond LGBTQ inclusion and broader than the wedding travel and hospitality industries. And, And now my work is I, I, it, I have lots to say about how to support inclusion in for everyone, for everyone. Yeah. So that's yeah. been the trajectory. Wow. I'm mean, thank you for laying that out. And then of course there's like a zillion little side conversations we can have <laughs> about all those la- layers of it. Um, but it sounds like you, you needed to stay true to who you were. And uh, when you weren't, the universe was making it uh, so that you kind of had to, uh, take take stock and and um, focus and and re reengage with the work that was meaningful to you in a, in a different way. I get it though because I've never like I I as you know I'm an event planner background. Uh, you know I was running charitable events for organizations and I always joke that um, it's in my contract that I don't run golf outings and I um, the only wedding I ever wanted to run was my own. <laughs> like and once and only once like I'm like that's I'm, I don't want to do this again so this better work um so more prior to you for having done all the other ones because I think it's too many personalities involved as <laughs> my thought is yeah I uh, mean two let's just start with two brides and two moms who are supportive I mean that's four big personalities right there potentially right. right so it's like <laughs> yeah. brides everyone's invested on speed <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, I, I've been I followed you through the you know the Equality Institute, and then I was really intrigued when I saw you were coming out with a book called Inclusive Three Hundred and Sixty, and I want to get the full title here: Inclusive Three Hundred and Sixty Proven Solutions for an Equitable Organization, which also feels like you are on the cusp of a conversation that's happening in a bigger way right now across the the globe, and that you know, like for instance, I don't know when belonging became part of the the lexicon, you know, diversity, it was diversity and inclusion. Then it was diversity, equity, inclusion. Then someone thought die doesn't sound like a really good acronym. What else could we add? And then, you know, it's sort of like, but now like belonging is thrown in. And I, I'm really touched by this because my work's really been about people feeling like they belong. I've always used the word inclusion, but it, I think the word belonging is, feels more like what i my brand and my work has really been about people feeling like they're supposed to be here. They see people who are like themselves and meet people they otherwise wouldn't have. Like that's to me is, is everyone's there, you know? So I'm curious, like how your work started to morph into this broader conversation. How do you feel like you're able to tap in and, and what are uniquely, what are you uniquely bringing to this conversation that we're starting to have on a bigger scale? Well, I love the concept of belonging, but it's, it's very abstract and it means something different to everyone. And I think in order to create a culture of belonging, 
we have to build the systems where first of all, there is diversity. (laughs) Second of all, where those diverse or underrepresented voices feel included and psychologically safe. And, you know, when we add all of those layers, uh, because there's a lot, you know, in just those two topics, then we can sort of get to this concept of belonging. But it's, it's sort of the holy grail of it all. I think there's a lot of stuff that has to be done to lay the foundation for it. So I really, um, what I believe is that most of us are really well-meaning people. And most of us want to do and say the right thing. And a lot of times we don't know where to start when it comes to conversations about diversity, because a lot of times we are afraid of saying and doing the wrong thing. And so we don't say or do anything because we're afraid of making a mistake and afraid of getting it wrong. And so what I want to do is give people permission to make mistakes, give people permission to just start, just try, and let's try to remove some of the excuses for not getting into action. And that's really what Inclusive 360 is all about. It's about teaching folks, mostly organizations, but teaching folks how to get into action right away. It's a, it's a roadmap. It's a way to make your own diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging strategic plan. It's, it's a very solutions-oriented book. And if you implement a whole bunch of these solutions, which, by the way, come from big companies doing this stuff already, a lot of these ideas are really innovative. They're not something we're seeing in a lot of small and mid-sized businesses. If we start to implement these solutions, most of which are policy changes, which means there are systems changes, which means there's less reliance on humans or human error, Um, if we start to implement these solutions, we're creating the foundation for belonging. And that's what I believe is that let's, you have permission to mess up, but here's how you recover. What I believe is that so many of us, we're, when we don't know what to say, the solution is to ask a question. And by asking a question, especially like a, a substantial question, not just kind of a shallow question, but asking a meaningful question, like, can you explain what you meant by that? Or can you tell me more about fill in the blank? When you ask a more meaningful, open-ended question, you can start to build stronger relationships. If you respect the answer, if you connect, I have this whole process called the ARC method, but it's really about um, getting into action and starting with asking a question and looking for meaningful solutions. Mm. I like it. I'm I'm really into like books that give you a roadmap to taking action. And I know you said this is for organizations, but organizations are made of people. So mm-hmm. these it, people have to take these actions and then you know, the result is a better organization. And you were talking about how some of these are ideas from bigger companies. Did you bring stories into the book of, you know, results that other companies have been seeing on these larger scales and then thinking about how to apply that to these small and medium-sized companies? Yes, absolutely. So I I read a newsletter every Saturday morning called Five Things. And Five Things is five stories that I find that I consider to be really positive, uplifting, inspiring of organizations doing really cool things related to diversity, equity, and inclusion or corporate social responsibility. So I hunt for these stories. And there's a lot more negativity out there, but I find the positive. And this newsletter is 
a labor of love. I've been doing it for over two years now. And so those positive stories are really the foundation of the book because they are solutions. For the most part, they're solutions. And so, you know, the book was really about compiling these stories and then giving a lot of context for them so that people understood the why and why this matters. But here are so many solutions that you can actually get into action on right away. I love that you're sharing a little bit about your process because I think writing a book is a daunting thing for most people, uh, even after they've done the first one. Um, But you've just broken down that you just have this sort of passion project to infuse a little little goodness into the world, a little positivity, and happen to be on, on your topic that you were really interested in and you you do that long enough and you're like wow there's some really good content here <laughs> i should share that I and mean, that's kind of how my my book came to be as well three years of writing a weekly email and then being like wow these are all stories about like business and life lessons oh look they actually all have a theme they're all about like engaging your net oh wait there's this is sort of like mm-hmm. there, there's i mean i'm the theme right like these are things i care about um, so I think that's a good lesson for anyone listening to think about how they start small and sort of build up to a big project like a book. Having all that material to work with must have been a lot easier than just like staring at a blank page would have been. Yeah, that's exactly right. And for anyone out there who is building their business, I think it's an excellent discipline to get in the habit of writing a weekly newsletter. You are building fans, whether or not you know it. You know, if you have that consistency and you're providing real value and it's not just about self-promotion, people are going to dig it. I mean, I have a, a great open rate. Yeah. And I, I get and it's a Saturday. really cool feedback. I love that you have a Saturday yeah, email too. Is there a story about why you chose to, to have something coming out on the weekend? Um, I just happened to read somewhere like five or six years ago that it's the best time to send a newsletter. Funny. I don't actually yeah. get any other newsletters on Saturday morning, so... Um, yeah. my open rate though, is at least 25% typically. Nice. So, uh, often 30. So it, and I get wonderful feedback. And part of my process of writing this book was to survey my readers. Um, and I had 60 people fill out this survey telling me how much they love my newsletter. It was like the coolest thing ever. Um, yeah. it's definitely like the, you know, what I need to, to, to the fuel to keep up this work. Well, I actually want to continue down this path then talking about sort of engaging with your network. Um, the question I've been asking my guests for years now is, you know, there is the, there's staying in touch with your sort of your closest circle of, of friends and connections and family. But then there's that second and third tiers or second and third layers out, the people that you see, you know, once a year at a conference or you worked with five years ago, but you don't really have a reason to right now. And the thing about them is that you like them. They like you. These are people that you enjoyed, you know, knowing. How do you nurture and sustain those kinds of looser, weaker ties and those looser connections? Do you have any habits or philosophies or practices that help you sort of stay top of mind, help have keep them top of mind, et cetera? I'm very good about connecting with folks after a conference or an event, um, certainly connecting on LinkedIn possibly Facebook, um, and sending out, you know, an, an, an email as well. So I, I do all of those kind of fundamentals. Um, beyond that, I really enjoy people. Like I'm definitely a people person. And the older I get, the more of a people person I am. I'm, I'm an extrovert. 
And um, especially now that I'm super comfortable in my skin, you know, now that I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm owning myself. I'm comfortable. Um, there's no, there's, it's all authentic. Um, so because of I'm kind of at this point, I'm always looking for ways to be of service and to be of value and to give. So sometimes that means sending an email that says, hey, saw this and thought of you. Sometimes it means passing a referral or making an introduction. Um, but it always, always involves the question as I'm connecting with folks and, and maintaining these relationships afterwards, how can I help you? What is it you need? Um, what is it you're looking for? And really looking, making sure that I'm available to them um, in that way. Yeah, that's great. That, um, how, you know, being a value, that was my sort of mantra the week of March 9th, 2020, <laughs> uh, as everything was like crumbling and shifting and pausing, whatever language you want to use to describe that incredible moment in history. But I kept thinking like, how do I show up and add value in this moment? Because like, what we're going to remember is who showed up, you know, like, I, like, I just need to like do the next thing, do the next thing. And mm -hmm. it ended up turning into a whole business for me. But like, that wasn't, it wasn't like, how do I make more money? How do I make more money? It was like, okay, what do people need right now? How can I show up and add value? What do people need right now? How can I show up and add value? And I think, um, you, you know, you, you could have better systems than that to like keep yourself organized. <laughs> but like, I love that that is your baseline as far as, you know, what motivates you to take action. Um, now, you and I were talking a little bit before we hit record about your book and you've invested very heavily in like making sure that you had a great book promotion. Um, but you were also really putting a lot of personal effort and time into making sure you're that you are personalizing that promotion and effort. And that's all about activating and engaging through your network. And, you know, earlier you were talking about being shy growing up and, you know, I'm, I'm curious if there were any challenges to approaching this. Cause like, this is not your first book. So, you know, it's, you can't just be like, everyone support me. Cause it's my first book. <laughs> Um, it's a book that you really care about. You feel like it's the right moment in time for it. You have to find people who really are also as motivated. So how did you approach thinking through, like getting the support you needed? And did you feel like you already had that network in place? Well, I've always been very organized about my contacts, my mailing list, all of that. I've been pretty tight. So my systems were relatively solid. Um, what I why I chose to invest in this promotion process and what that looked like was that I um I knew that because this is the first book that I've written that has nothing to do with weddings and it really represents a major career pivot for me. I knew that I had to do this right. I knew that if I was going and, and by the way, when am I going to write my next book? Right, this for this could be my last book. Who knows? Right, so I have to do this right. Um, so I really wanted to make sure that I use this book launch as my statement to the world. Here I am. I have some really cool ideas and I hope you listen. Um, that can really help you. And so based on how well I know myself, <laughs> I, I knew that it would be very easy to hide. I knew that it would be very easy to just sort of like let this book kind of whimper its way into the world and not do any sort of major promotion. But I hired a company to create a, a strategy and, and plan for me and manage this whole process because I don't want to hide. And I, I know that I'm supposed to be uncomfortable and I'm supposed to do the hard stuff. And even if that means self-promotion, even if that means like 
an obnoxious level of social media that is be outside of my comfort zone. <laughs> um, it's how it's how it has to happen in order for me to make the impact that I'm destined to make in order for me to help people the way I know I'm destined to help people. And so I um I really had to push through all of the uncomfort, all of the discomfort. And that meant reaching out to people from the wedding industry, former wedding clients, former people I knew who came to my course. It meant that I certainly reached out to former clients since I've evolved away from the wedding industry, like my network in Chicago, like literally the crevices of my mind. I mean, I reached out to you, right? Um, and you not you and I haven't talked really actively in quite a while. And so really reaching out to those folks and saying, hey, this is what I'm up to. And this is why this book matters. And I miss connecting. But also, would you be willing to help me? Um, and making those videos was very vulnerable. I probably did a couple hundred of them with accompanying emails. And it was really hard, um, but it works. And it's been really inspiring and uh, exciting to sort of see people excited for me and wanting to show up and believe in me, no matter what part of my past or, or present they're from. Um, people have really come out of the woodwork to say, hey, I believe in you and I think this stuff matters and I want to help. So it's kind of That's a beautiful awesome. thing. And I, I, I've never really been comfortable saying like, oh, I have my tribe, but now I'm kind of feeling like oh, I'm building a tribe and I, that's, that's what leaders do. Yeah. People are definitely backing you and it's nice for you to see that. And if you'd never asked, you'd never get that acknowledgement. You'd never know that so many people are, are rooting for you and want to support you and see you do well in the world. So like you had to go outside your own comfort zone to receive that and you know, um, I've been uh, thinking a lot about this. I just reread um, some notes that I had from Never Eat Alone. Um, and in that book, he talks about um, you have to both be uh, willing to ask as well as willing to give. You have to work both sides of that. It's not the direct quote here, folks, but you have to work both sides of that equation. You know, and a lot of us are much more comfortable being givers and not asking. But if you don't do both, you're not building a relationship is his point. And I, I just think, you know, Keith Frazzi is brilliant in this work. So um, I've been thinking a lot about this. And one way I've gotten around this question around self-promotion and maybe almost to, you know, to a degree that I could rein it back a little, but um, I was trained in fundraising. Like that's my background, as you know. And in fundraising, they have this phrase, which is, you know, anonymous wrote it. So who knows, but uh, kick yourself, if you're afraid to make the ask, kick yourself out of the way and let the cause talk. Because it's when you're asking for money for an organization, it's not about you. It's about the cause. And I think that's true here as well. I know that it feels like you're asking for you or I'm asking for me, but you believe in the work. Like it, you're asking for support of this idea of this book getting out in the world of these concepts being embraced. And it's not, you know, will you help me? It's, will you help this book have a good chance and be seen? And will you engage with this work? And will you take the action to make that happen? And I think, you know, when you think of it that way, it's an invitation for people to participate. So anyone listening who's feeling like maybe Bernadette was feeling, that's a one way to reframe. And specifically, I wanted to follow up and ask you, you mentioned just now videos, hundreds of videos, you said, what was the purpose of the videos? Like where in the sequence of reaching out did you do the videos? 
the videos are going out to folks or went out to folks uh, in in order to get them psyched up to help with pre-sales, pre-orders. And so I used Loom and I did like a quick webcam video. Most of them were between a minute and a minute and a half and sort of personalizing it. When was the last time we talked? Why, you know, I'm sorry, we haven't talked long more recently, things like that. And then getting into the why of the book and really, you know, getting out of the way and talking about why this matters. So that's, that's great advice, Robbie. Um, and so letting that do it and then kind of making the ask at the end, which is really about, I'll take all the help I can get because I believe in this. So even if it's as simple as social media sharing, if you can, please let me know and I'll connect you with my launch director. And um, it works. You know, I probably have at least 60, 70 people who responded to my, to my ask, um, which has been amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so that was actually, so this Loom video, which you're sending via email is, uh, and I think what, what's great about Loom is I think you can send a link and it usually opens a little preview, right? So that's, you exactly. know, that works out. Um, but that's actually the first time you're reaching out to somebody and it could be someone that you talked to last week or a month ago or five years ago or 25 years ago, but like, right. it's just personalizing it. And what was your, I mean, okay, down to nitty gritty. What's your subject line then? Because you got to get them to open it. Yeah. So I've been testing out a few subject lines, um, but one of them was uh, fate, looking need help, need help with new book or favor requested, inclusive 360, a few things like that. Help and favor were two key words um, that I used. Um, and I do not know whether or not those words are successful, but I was following, um, <laughs> I was following the magic words by Phil Jones, his book. And he has some key, key, keywords. And I was using some of those keywords. Yeah. His book about exactly what to say. Exactly that, what to say. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great book. So um, awesome. You know, cause that's the other thing people don't think about the, the subject line until they're ready to hit send, but it's such an important part of that process. Well, that's, that's amazing. Um, and that you're getting sort of that, the feedback that people want to see you do well. Um, what's next? Like, uh, if we were, let, let's say we were meeting a year from now and, uh, we were talking about all of your successes over this past year, everything you've accomplished, what are we going to be celebrating? You know, what are you most looking forward to, to in the year ahead? Well, I'm building a company, you know, I'm, I'm building a speaking career, um, in the DEI space, but I'm also building a consulting firm. And I have a senior consultant who's doing really deep analysis and strategy work with clients. And I have some folks who are delivering other trainings, not just the ones that I personally deliver. And so it's really about building my company so that we can help more people, we can help more organizations get into action about this um, and move from this place of being stuck, move from this place of just talking and actually get into action. And so I'm going to be really proud of myself because I will have people on payroll who are from underrepresented groups who I am paying because I believe in them and they're amazing. And so I'm, I will be keeping them employed while also helping organizations and the people within those organizations, especially the underrepresented people feel like they are, 
moving in the right direction and that they have uh, real commitments and, and we're helping them towards these goals. So it's really, you know, it's, it's been such a working on my mindset for the past, especially as I evolved away from the wedding industry, figuring out my mindset as I become the entrepreneur I'm destined to be um, has been a huge part of this work, but that is really what it's about. It's about, increasing the growing the business so we can make a bigger impact. Well, I can't wait to celebrate all that with you because it sounds like an amazing vision. Um, so Bernadette, how can people find you and follow your work? You can visit me at BernadetteSmith.com and at BernadetteSmith.com, you will see a, a link to get a copy of my book and more information about my speaking engagements and you know, meet some of the other cool folks on my team. Awesome. Well, we'll have that link and also a link to your Twitter and your LinkedIn, all at the show notes at onthechmooze.com. Bernadette, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It's really great to reconnect with you, Robbie. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bernadette. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? something you put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 252. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources in today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which are your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance, and I look forward to connecting again next week. They'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.